Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Melina Lee Williams Haas. I deeply appreciate you listening and taking the time to hang out with me. I will be addressing issues of life, the universe, and everything that are often bogged down and mired in shame and grief, and talk about how they can be repackaged to be useful and gorgeous and fucking awesome for you. So sit back and relax, or you know what? Sit up and freak out. However, you prefer to listen. Let's go. How did we even get on the subject when we were talking about this yesterday? I don't know. I was trying to remember this morning and I and I could not fucking remember. So we were talking about No, we were talking about your your murder porn fixation. Right, right. We were talking about various documentaries and various murder porns. Right. And then I asked if you had seen anything on this, any of the like 10,000 Nexium documentaries. Right, right, right. And then you got that look on your face and I was like, oh shit. Oh shit. <laughs> funny, funny you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just as surprised to find out that I was, you know, within a hair's breadth of, you know, being sort of, I don't think I was going to be absorbed into it because I'm just- You sure as hell were. That's but, how they do it. Yeah. I mean, I don't pretend to be just any stronger than anybody else, but I just, my mind wasn't on that. My mind was on the job. That's how I got into it. It was a job. <laughs> okay. So let us rewind. Uh, Jack is a filmmaker and a uh, producer as well. A uh, producer, Another? writer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but mostly so, a director. A jack of all trades. <laughs> right, 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 right. But mostly a director. Right. And uh, I have known Jack since 1987. Probably earlier, I think. You think maybe? No, winter of 1987 is when I met you. That was my freshman year in college. Oh, that's right. Because our friend Paul mm-hmm. had a party out at his Weehawken. Yes. Rental house. Because, and then we had a friend in common, and I was like, are you fucking kidding that I'm going to New Jersey? Right. For a house party. You had to go to, Ho- had to, not, go to Hoboken. Not trying to do that. I had to take the path. Yeah, and take was, the path. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was not, as a Manhattanite. So that's right. That, so like, I was in my junior year. Yeah. And you were freshman year. Freshman year. Yeah, that's right. At so New York University. Ago. Right. And, uh, yeah. Oh, my God. We were tiny babies. Yeah. No, it's funny. I went by, I mean, last time I went by NYU, you know, I was already in my 40s so it's got to be you know and i saw these little kids like outside the dorms and stuff <laughs> and i thought they were like you know what are they doing outside the right little tiny little toddlers doing outside <laughs> leaning up against you know, these Acting univers- like they belong yeah there. these university buildings and i realized they were college students mm-hmm. you know they were that young so yeah you're right it's hard to believe now it's really all- weird to put it into perspective of because in that time, I'm not thinking of myself as like a little tiny baby because I had no. my shit together. I had my career planned out. Oh, yeah. You think you know everything. I had like gotten into NYU by the end of junior year. Right. You know, so my senior year had just been me skating through and right. I was, you know, everything was super awesome. Then I met this guy at this party and destroyed my life. Right. That would, that would be me. <laughs> that would be me. But you got away. In the end, you got away. But what's important is, and this is, the, to, to put into perspective, I find that it was very interesting that so many pivotal 
aspects of my life shifted once we got to Los Angeles. Right. And it was the first time I made decisions on my own and of my own impetus and completely doing my own shit. Well, because after we broke up, it was like you truly had to be independent. Yeah, you know, I was you, the you, I was first time living on my own, away from New York and all this other shit. So it's kind of, it was a lot. Yeah. And it took a long time before we actually were friends again. Oh, no, it was, it was hardcore. I mean, that was a very hard, hard, hard mm-hmm. breakup. And uh, yeah, it was years. Truthfully, you know, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of it was just guilt, but I also worried, you know, we were both trying to just like, figure out our lives and and mm-hmm. just survive. But I really felt worried you were having trouble, you know, and, and, and it, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Um, it was rough. I, yeah. And obviously from, you know, everything that you put into your creative work following shows how truly rough it was, you know, but yeah. you, again, you, but I like, did it. you emerged up the other side. Yay. Uh, and then, so fast forward <laughs> to like now, you know, now yeah. we're old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now we're old, old, you know, from fledgling filmmaker to university professor of filmology. Was it? It's not filmology. No, but it's sort of <laughs> filmmaking. What do they yeah. call it? Motion picture production directing. You know, like I, yeah, I've, I've been teaching film concurrently with while making movies. So that's always, that's just super cool. Yeah. And the reason he's actually here in New York and we get to do this podcast together is that he is now filming a behind the scenes slash documentary slash Criterion Collection version esque esque right. <laughs> right take on America's deadliest home video which you should go and watch definitely because it's freaking awesome a movie in which I starred with several other uh, people who will be known to you such as Danny Bonaducci and Mick Weinhoff who and- you might not know and Melora Walters who if you are a fan of what was she in? Well, she's in a lot of Paul Thomas she's been Anderson. She's a lot of, she yeah, was, yeah. She most, mostly, you know, you'd know her from Magnolia. Right. Uh, but she was also in Boogie Nights and That's lots right. of other movies, you know. So, but this is, you know, again, prior to her career taking off. Yeah. And we did this independent film, which is now a cult classic. Yeah. We yeah. can safely say. Yeah. And so as we were having a discussion about movies and whatnot and catching up on what we're watching, what are we watching? Uh, then this issue with the Nexium thing came up right, yesterday. Right. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. So I got the, you know, we sketched out the story, but now like, now we do the deep dive. Right. Because I was like mesmerized by this. If you don't know this story, then stop, pause this and go on Google. How is it spelled? N-E-X-V, like Roman or is it N or is it NX is an NX IUM NX it's 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 something e, it's spelled I don't even know wrong. I didn't know how yeah it's spelled wrong it's spelled annoyingly it's like NXVM or right, something right, like it's right, supposed right. to be like the Roman, Roman numeral right right, right 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 and this was a case that started hitting there was there were several different hit points there was the first time when you started hearing about like the celebrity kids showing up as part of this weird self help cult and this was what, like early, mid-2000s? I don't, uh, yeah, exactly. Like two, I, I don't know when exactly it started. I got, I, you know, I was approached in 2009. Okay, so yeah. yes. So I think probably when I first started hearing about it, because I have a, an affinity for like tracking cult and culty sort of right. stories. Right. And heard about it and it was sort of one of these like, too intense self-help cults, right? Right, right. Something along the lines of Landmark, where there are people who have certainly benefited from Landmark, but there's also an aspect of Landmark that's very like multi-level marketing, culty kind of thing going on there. Right, right, right. And so Nexium seemed to be along those lines at that point. 
from what we knew. We were like, well, it's helping people, but it seems a little culty. Yeah. See, truthfully, I didn't, I didn't even know. I didn't know anything about them. Yeah. I guess it worked to my advantage. It because, did because if I you had did no, know, I, you would not oh, have I, said yes. Well, the problem is, you know, the, you know, the the situation. With, okay, so what happened? Well, it's it's a very common anybody who's in the arts, you know, or anybody who's just like struggling, you know, making the rent will appreciate that, you know, when a job comes along, you take it. <laughs> Thank you, you know? very much. You know, and it's funny in my career, you know, there have been times. It's so funny because. I forget what the expression is. It's like, you know, you've made it when you can afford to say no, hmm. but that never is consistent. Like I remember I did the <laughs> sequel to the movie Wild Things. Did you ever see Wild Things with Matt Dillon? And, I absolutely did uh, not. You didn't see that movie? No. Wild Things has a three, oh, has that. very famous three way. They're all double crossing each other. You know, it's a, uh, it's white people talking. Yeah, but it's mostly just people Fucking around and betraying people each other. Fucking, I don't want to see well, that. I, I tell you, I'm not a fan. I wasn't a fan of the first movie necessarily, <laughs> although it was directed by James Naughton, who directed Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Oh, know. which was a good movie, right? But anyway, so but there was a point in my career where I was offered Wild Things Two by Sony. Columbia was making the sequel to it, so mm-hmm. I did Wild Things Two, uh, which was fine. It was fun, you know. It wasn't like, you know, a life's goal to make that movie, but it was a you know a studio movie, and it was sure. fun to do. And then they wanted me to do Wild Things 3. And at that point, that's just what I'm getting at. I felt like I was in a strong enough position, at least for the moment financially, to turn Wild Things 3 down. I had this thing like, Wild Things 2, shame on you. Wild Things 3, <laughs> shame <laughs> on me. So, so I turned it down. But, <laughs> but, then, but then... I fucking can't. <laughs> I was still stuck on Wild Things 2 Electric Boogaloo. I had right. not even like developed it as far right, as you right, had. Right, right, right. So, so, but then of course, you know, a couple of months later, the the tank is running empty and uh, running dry. And I'm like, you know, I'll give me anything. Give me porn. I'll do anything. <laughs> so there are, t- there, there have always, show business for most people is, unless you're very, very lucky, is this kind of parabola of mm. little moments of success if you're lucky and then you have a lot of waiting and a lot of like, what am I going to do to make the rent? And this was one of those situations where uh, I needed to make, literally make the rent. And I was approached by a producer friend of mine who said, can you do live television directing? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, sure. I mean, it's like, and, and I, t- truthfully, there's a big difference between directing like a feature film and live TV directing, which is like directing like a baseball game or, a lot or, or, or a political convention or, you know, convention yeah. or any, or a game show or anything like that. But it's something that I had done multi-camera stuff because I had done uh, some reality television. I did the original uh, first couple of seasons of <laughs> Temptation, Temptation Island. Island. Right, right. <laughs> which wasn't live. But it had a lot of cameras and a lot of people and a lot of like, you know, I had to sort of figure out this puzzle of yeah. how to put this silly thing together. So I said, sure, I can do live television directing. And they said, great, because the Dalai Lama is coming to to Albany <laughs> and it's going to be this big sort of religious spiritual conference where there's going to be a, a, Roman, a, a Roman Catholic a bishop or a cardinal and there's going to be a high ranking rabbi and they're all going to get together and discuss you know, and do the Macarena. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's a big deal, but it's the Dalai Lama. And, you know, my wife's a Buddhist, but that's a big deal. Like, yeah, well, cool. I should, would, fuck, no one would say no right, to that. Yeah, fuck. I, I want to meet the Dalai Lama and I'll, I, that sounds like a, like actually a responsible job. And so of course I'll do it. And so I said, yes. And I didn't really think anything beyond that because in a lot of jobs, it's just like, can you do this? The Dalai Lama 
sort of legitimized the whole thing for me. But even if it was like, can you come to Albany and film Joe Schmo the Buddhist? If they were paying, I would be like, sure. Thank right? you very much. Right. But they didn't They didn't frame it in any I way. I do kind of want to see Joe Schmo the Buddhist. Joe Schmo the Buddhist sounds good. <laughs> so, so, so they didn't say, hey, this is being produced by X organization. They right. didn't say these are the people behind the scenes. Right. They just, the, my friend was a, basically an independent movie producer who was coming to someone, me, that he knew who could do the job that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. So I said, sure. So that was it. The only thing that they did then because the next thing was, well, how much are you guys going to pay? Is that they said, well, we can pay you this amount, which wasn't an astronomical amount, but it would certainly cover the rent. Or, <laughs> or, and this is the big or, or you can take the program. And I said, what do you mean the program? They said, well, you know, this group, and I guess they must have said, maybe they said Nexium, but I don't probably know. Probably did. But they probably did, but that doesn't register. They no. said, well, this, the people that are bringing the Dalai Lama over have this sort of self-help learn how to how to uh, better yourself sort mm-hmm. of program and it's really good and you know it helps people with all kinds of who are struggling who want to be make make their careers you know it's a classic thing like you want to be more successful you know and it look look it, we got the Dalai Lama so exactly. obviously the program works so maybe you want to take the program in lieu of pay and of course uh, you know inside of a like a tenth of a second, I was like, no, I'll take the money. <laughs> uh, uh, because the program wasn't going to pay the rent. No. So I said, but, you know, sounds intriguing. I was a classic. You got any literature you can send me? <laughs> you know, like... Uh, I'll take you know. a brochure. Yes, yeah, I definitely want to look at it. And I think a couple of times prior to the shoot, it was kind of broached again in a kind of roundabout way from different people. Like, hey, mm. you're going to take the program, Jack? And I'm like, yeah, no, I'll totally. Let, look, let me get down there. Let me do the I want to get the shoot right. Make sure we bank good Dalai Lama footage. Exactly. And then, you know, of course, I'll look at your program or whatever. And so I think they sensed that I was all about business and mm-hmm. they needed me to do the job because right. they needed that thing to work. So they didn't really press me beyond that. And then I was off to Albany. Mm. And you were, at the time, you were still living in L.A.? Yeah, I was living okay, in L.A. Yeah, I was living yeah, yeah. in L.A. I've never been to Albany. Why would you? I don't know. All the years we lived in New York was like, I don't, never, the only, the only isn't Albany in, in uh, Ironweed? Is that Albany? Did you ever see Ironweed? That's a grim fucking movie with Jack Nicholson and I Meryl Streep. Yeah, but that was like in the 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, it's just Depression era Albany. And it's just like it's fucking cold and it's miserable and it's like sad. I don't and, think it has changed much. And I don't know. I mean, I, I went there and it was, I can't remember what time of year it was, but but we went up there to shoot. But it got a little strange right away because, and I... <laughs> Typically, so when you uh, so you get off the plane and did anyone come and get you? Yeah, they, we were met at the airport. Okay, and I can't remember if I went with the producer that had set me up, but I'm pretty sure we were met by either Mark Vicente, who was the main filmmaker mm-hmm. uh, in the in the program, and he was sort of the he was the guy that knew my friend who came to me. So oh, okay. it was kind of this three way. So, and if you have seen any of the Nexium documentaries, this is the like guy with salt and pepper hair who is at the forefront right. of documenting Nexium as it grew. So right, right. right. So I didn't really seen this dude. Correct. So I didn't really know Mark. I knew his friends, the one who hired me. So we got there, and I can't remember if because I'm usually pretty much a spaz about this, but it's like I figured that I would be put in a hotel because that's what you do when you go yeah. on location. You're, even your shitty motel, you're just you usually have a place to go in the hotel yeah a crew goes in the motel or a hotel but i didn't go to a 
motel or hotel. First, they took me to some sort of gymnasium, which is kind of an interesting <laughs> first stop from the from the airport. So you get off the plane, they pick you up, and they go to a gym. I go to a gym. Yeah. And it's nighttime because we got in. You know, I flew in from L.A. It's night. Here they are. These people are playing volleyball at night, which in and of it's inside, which is not in a, unusual necessarily. I just didn't understand why, <laughs> why you were there. Why I was going there. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it was a lot of women playing volleyball and this one little guy sort of in, on the court with them. Yeah. I didn't understand why we were there. And, and I, I was they said, well, you should meet the guy in charge. And I was like, okay, <laughs> sure. I mean, he's the executive producer. He's the one that's, I should meet him, I guess. You know? <laughs> and so, but first he was kind of like coming off the court and you could tell there was this, like all these, it seemed predominantly women were sort of like hovering around him. And he was literally like holding court while they were playing. And they, they he had their attend full attention, command mm. of their attention. Mm. And I was introduced to him and it was very much like, a very cursory, like he just wasn't really that interested in me. Right. But I was introduced to him and then he went off and grabbed a towel and, you know, went on his merry way. But, but, <laughs> but at that point I was sort of, sort of taken to a hotel. I was put in to a room in the compound or what. I right. Think, so where you had arrived at this gymnasium was part of the. It was sort of like part of a large, I, mean, yeah. you know, I can't, I can't remember if it was all. The, like, it was like a, like a retreat center. Almost. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I just realized it was all just like part of this organization that mm -hmm. it was like, Oh, they, they must have room and board for people who are, are taking these like long-term programs. And I was just going to occupy right. one of these rooms while we were shooting. Again, my friend who had hired me, was a pretty nuts and bolts, you know, producer guy. So I never questioned whether he was even that connected. He may mm -hmm. have mentioned that he was going to take the program or he was taking the program. But again, whatever this program thing was, didn't really have any sinister air to it. To yeah. me, it just like, if anything, I had, we had talked about this before when we were in college, I had been taken by some woman that I was trying to date to one of these things called direct centering, which was like this <laughs> Estian thing that they had at the Hilton. And I was immediately surrounded by people telling me that I could have all, all my dreams would come true. Right and I now. Could, and I could be Steven Spielberg right now at 20 years old, if I was willing to pay the $750 initiation fee, and then it would all come true. And I ran out of that hotel in Midtown <laughs> fucking crying. I was so disturbed. So I, I, I was predisposed to just think that all those things were just silly bullshit. But it didn't feel like that to you when you were first arriving there. No, I just, again, yeah. it's like you get off a plane and it's night, you don't know where you are. And I'm not one of these people who enjoys being in a new place anyway. <laughs> like I don't enjoy like, oh, I want to be in a, in a different city in a hotel. That's exciting. It's like, I'm a very much a homebody. So any new place, even a new hotel yeah. is like, Ew, I, I, I got to get adjusted. And it was doubly weird to be in a space that wasn't a hotel. It had a personal, it felt, mm. it didn't feel like somebody's home, but it didn't feel like it was an impersonal. It's a very living, odd limbo. It was a weird. When you have, it hasn't been fully explained to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I just remember the room itself to have this weird sort of like quasi part dorm, part like, asylum cell what? you know like i just didn't have, well, did it have the cinder block wall no it was just it had like... a beige it was really beigey you know and, <laughs> and 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 it didn't have much 
it, or, or any, as I, as I remember it, maybe I've made it, maybe fixed it in my head, but it didn't seem to have anything personal on the walls mm -hmm, or anything. Mm -hmm. It just felt very, very Spartan yeah. and impersonal. And it was the fact that it was so Spartan that made it feel sort of institutional. And that's, sure. and that gave that it a little sense. weird edge. But again, it was kind of like, and again, I maybe I'm just like, this is just the filmmaker in me, but I, maybe the bed was a little like childlike. He's like too small, you know, like it was just like everything felt like kind of like just kind of weird. Yeah. And, and I don't even know if I had keys or anything to the door or. Also like the doors didn't lock? Yeah. I just think it was all kind of, uh -uh. and I think, I think, no. it, I think it was kind of just Unacceptable. like. Yeah. I think it was just kind of like, we're all here in this together, making this thing happen. And again, the important thing is that all along it was the Dalai Lama. So any weird vibes I was getting was like but they booked the Dalai Lama. He's no fucking idiot. Well, you got to think that before he shows up somewhere, there's a million people. Uh, yeah, how many people who are have, double, triple, quadruple checking? Yeah, you don't just put him anywhere. Right. Don't. Why is he going to, like, how many people are coming, looking for interviews, let alone have him come to the States, to yes, Albany, yes. to do a show? I mean, how many middlemen does he have to go through to verify that this is a legitimate? This is what always got me, is that, because I remember seeing this and thinking, if they could get to the Dalai Lama, right? What chance does it? <laughs> <laughs> if they can fool the Dalai Lama, <laughs> uh, well, they, you know, they, they again. It's like I was in there to do this job, and of course, I could have done due diligence and said, "Well, what exactly is this program?" But two things were at play. One was I was desperate for money. Two, the Dalai Lama, the imprimatur of the Dalai Lama just made it seem like, well, whatever the deal is, it's it's not, it can't be You still be get that. to be in the presence of like it one of the greatest human beings alive. I mean, he's got to be, if he's like, he's got to say, he's got to say that this, they're okay. Even if they're a bunch of clowns, <laughs> it isn't dangerous. Right, right. right. It, it, there isn't shady shit really genuinely shady shit going on, exactly. which I didn't know. And it wasn't like- And at and, that time, it, probably there wasn't shady shit going I, on. You know, the timeline is weird for me because when I, I saw the documentary too, and I was kind of like, well, was, when were they branding each other and all that shit? <laughs> you know, like when did that, when was that, was that shit going on? Was that, I don't know. But it all seemed fairly, I don't want to say it seemed legitimate, but it was legitimized by his presence. It probably seemed innocuous, definitely. Yeah, and I just kind of went like, okay, I'd rather be in a hotel with a where I can lock the door, but fuck it, they're paying me, and it's going to be a short gig, and I'll be out of here. And how long was it going to be? Was it just like I, a couple of days? Yeah, or? it was just, well, what it, what it was was it was like, I think the shoot itself was just like a couple of days of prep, and then the event, which was all happening in one day, and then there were supposed to be like a week or so of me supervising an edit of mm -hmm. uh, at least an early edit of this thing. And then I would go home. And so, you know, all together was probably less than two weeks, but it felt weirder after the event. So um, how was the event itself? Well, the event was fine. It was a little weird because I think I told you typically what happens when you're doing a, well, here's the thing. There was so much press for the Dalai Lama coming to Albany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess it's like, it would be different. All, I guess all, it is weird, the Dalai Lama coming to Albany. So there was so much attention and they had, they had booked this huge sort of palace theater for this event. Mm -hmm. But even so, the demand for tickets was so high that they decided to simulcast right. the event that we were filming to like local movie theaters so to, that people could to see accommodate the, the overflow. Right, yeah. right. So I said, wow, this is a big deal. 
So it wasn't that I was just doing a live switch that was going to tape. It was a live switch that was going like that was a show for people to watch live, like a live sporting event. Like fucking what was it back in the day? They used to do soap operas. Yeah, like live that, television. Wasn't it? Absolutely. You know, and and I always had enormous. It's funny. I was always wanted to do a documentary on the guys that are the sort of the unsung dramatists of live television, mm-hmm. which are these directors who essentially call shots. And if you watch, like I'm the last thing from being a sporting guy, but if you watch like the last inning of the World Series and you see how that is being, that information is being delivered, that they'll cut to the, you know, the pitcher is winding up and they'll cut to the batter and he's choking up on the bat. And then it'll cut to the batter's wife and she's biting her fingernails. <laughs> and then it'll cut to the, you know, and then it cuts to the manager and he's given signals and it cuts to the, you know, and, and it cuts to little Jimmy with his hot dog in his mouth. And, and, and it's like, all those are shots that are being called by a director for the cameras to get yeah. and then being called like take one that's all that all that shit you see on TV. like take two take 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 three you know they're basically calling out these shots as it occurs and think about like if you're on the that's wife amazing. biting her fingernails at the moment the batter the ball is released and the and he hits the home run and you're not on that shot at that moment so you kind of take you it for granted yeah. that you're when you watch an event very rarely is the is the camera not on the moment that you should be watching? And that's all being orchestrated by a live television director. And I don't pretend to be that, but I, I was like, well, fuck, I better like figure out a way to make this work. So I walked into this huge sort of like, you see these sort of satellite trailers where all the technicians go for a live event. Like this. I love that you've never done this before. And like, there's full on millions of dollars worth of equipment. <laughs> well, like I said, I, I thought, <laughs> to be fair, I thought that what they wanted me to do was basically decide how many cameras we needed to properly cover the event, place the cameras mm-hmm. and direct the cameras to shoot essentially what we call the coverage of the event. Right. And then I would basically sit in the booth and call out just yeah. like a regular television a cut of the of the thing as it went down. But typically what happens is if it's not being broadcast live, which mm-hmm. I didn't know at the time, what happens is that cut is sort of a rough pass. And then I don't know if you, most what happens is all the individual cameras are running their own at that time tape. Right. So their own camera is running. That means that you can at the end you can gather all the individual tapes and you can cut it together any way you want. At any point. At you any point. So even if you whole, yeah. you can yeah. So if you if I fuck up and I'm on you know somebody in the audience gasping at the Dalai Lama the moment he says something brilliant the camera that's on the Dalai Lama got that and we can cut that in later. Right. But as I was told it on the day, well, you better make sure this is like good because we've got all these filled up movie theaters of people watching this like a real, like the Super Bowl. And you're like, oh, really? All right, yeah. So I'll, I'm like, okay, so I, <laughs> sure thing. And I, you know, I enjoy that kind of thing. It's fun. I mean, one of the thrills of live television as an actor or as a director, or whatever, is that- You got one shot. That's it. So you got to like, and so it's kind of cool to be working in that intuitive, you know what that is as a mm-hmm. performer. You're like, yeah. I'm going to make this choice now and there's no going back and there's there's a thrill of that. Just in the flow, baby. Exactly. But I walked into the trailer and I said, where's the technical director, which is the dude who physically operates this, imagine just like, you know, like a 1950s, you know, <laughs> computer with a million <laughs> blinking lights and, and buttons. My job is to call the the camera and his job is to make sure that that, that particular camera is punched in and right. goes to goes out. That's a job unto itself. And and that's called a TD or a technical director. I'm the director. And I walked in and there was like an A technician in there. And I said, are you the 
technical director? And, and they said, no. And he said, I'm just the dude that's like plugging everything in. I said, well, where's the technical director? And he looked at me and goes, ain't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, sir, I ain't. No, I ain't. So that's when I realized that they hadn't really. But now I are. They didn't really know what the job was fully. They had the money to get all this shit together. but they that, had, I know, there's a fuck ton of cash right there, but, but they, they did not but have they the But they failed know-how. to provide that technician who would physically be punching the cameras in, as I called them. This is the thing. Like 99% of people who do what you do would not be able to even step in and do that. No. So I I just was like, I had that, you know, this happens all the time in filmmaking. There's always some like enormous like obstacle that you either attempt to overcome or you walk away. And so it's like, and I, as a teacher, I'm constantly saying the option is never wrap and go home. The option <laughs> should be, I got, there's got to be a workaround. There's got to be some workaround. And so funny enough, I said, well, listen, this dude who was basically setting up the equipment, who wasn't a technical, I said, can you show me where the key switches? Like where's camera one coming in? Where are they coming out? And what are the key buttons? And it's funny, whether it's this or if you go in, you know, if you've ever seen documentaries on like music recording where they're yes. sitting behind these huge mixing boards and there's like 80 quadrillion right. dials, generally there's like five or six key dials or faders that are really important. Right. And then everything, and everything else, else is, is sort of fine tuning. Like, yeah. You don't even ask picking. You don't even look at it. Yeah. So I really realized in that moment that if I knew this half dozen switches that I could do the job myself and basically just work the board. So in like 45 minutes, I just sort of taught myself with the help of this guy what I was going to do. And then soon everybody started filing in and it was like getting ready for showtime. And, and, uh, and I just, we just went ahead and did it. All right. So if you want to hear whether or not Jack successfully navigated the keyboard, not the keyboard, the board, the board of doom (laughs) and how he escaped uh, evil cult of branding women. Tune in next week. Unless, of course, you want to become a patron of my show, in which case you get the part two earlier than everyone else. (laughs) (laughs) And for all the rest of you, I'll see you next week. You've been listening to All That and Mo. Thanks so much for spending your precious, precious time with me today. My podcast is produced by Cody Crabb. Theme music by Georg Friedrich Haas, as performed by Marcus Weiss. And I look forward to spending time with you again really soon. Mm-hmm.